0: Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Centner Geology Podcast, episode 110. Spokane glaciation? Question mark? Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's been a while. I hope things are going well with you. It's mid-May. And, man, it's so perfect out there. It's so perfect out here in eastern Washington, the greenery, the flowers, the smells, everything, that anytime I'm sitting home, sitting in a Lazy Boy and reading, I'm like, I got to get out of here. I got to go back out. I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out on this perfect time of the year. And maybe you can relate to something like that wherever you happen to be living. But it is prime time here, and between taking geology students out in the field and doing some filming for a new project and going out and learning on my own, which is kind of what I was doing the last few years during the lockdown, it's all happening, and it's energizing for sure. Also energizing and a bit exhausting, I must say, was an intense 10-day stay with Ice Age Flood's geologists who stayed here at the house. Jerome Lessman from Vancouver Island University was here for uh, more than a week, uh, staying at the house here upstairs in one of our kids' bedroom. And uh, uh, Sky Cooley was here for a night. Joel Gombiner was here for two nights. And so we had a good old slumber party on the last night that they were here, which was about a week ago. So... I'm I'm focused today on one particular question about something called the Spokane glaciation, and I'd like to explain that. But uh, there was so much, um, there were so many creative juices flowing, and intense discussions, primarily between Jerome Lessman and I, over over scrambled eggs every morning, and then. <laughs> on road trips and everything else. And Jerome was teaching in my classroom. And if you've been following the YouTube channel, you've you've seen three separate Jerome Lessman videos in the last few weeks. Uh, it was intense in a good way. So whatever I just said, if I said exhausting, I don't mean it that way. It was just, you know, I, I, it, there's no way to maintain that pace of, of discovery and reading and looking at maps together, etc. So this is just the first of probably a series of audio podcast to complement what I've been doing in video form and also just in my classroom without cameras involving the Ice Age floods. So let's get into it at the three-minute mark. There was a guy by the name of J. Harlan Bretz. Almost all of you know that name by now. And the story of Bretz has been told many, many times involving the same phrases and places and narratives, and I'm not going to go through that again because I've already done it a number of times here and elsewhere, but it's a story that goes back a 100 years, and Bretz was here on foot with his graduate students summer after summer from the University of Chicago, and they were covering terrain that I know quite well from the last 15 years of being out there in eastern Washington and trying to learn on my own. And in this Geology 351 class that I've been teaching this spring, I told the students in early April, my only goal is to learn some new things with you. This is not me lecturing at you and stuff that I learned long ago, students. Instead, we're going to read a new scientific paper every week. We're going to get a discussion going. You're going to have all sorts of ideas and thoughts uh, and notes that you want to share with everyone. And then we'll go out in the field and continue our learning out there. And like many projects I've had in the last five years, I know what the start looks like. I know what the general goals are, but I trust the people involved. And I guess I trust myself to just follow whatever happens to bubble up. And there's a certain charm to that, which I've commented about here before, commented on here before. So this Ice Age Flood's learning this spring is no exception. All right. So that was the only goal. Can I learn some new stuff? I thought that I was going to learn the new stuff by the time I got to some brand new papers that were new to me, written in the last five years. Richard Waite, USGS, has published a few papers in the last five years. New stuff from Waite. O'Connor. Jim O'Connor, a new paper. Uh, a lengthy field guide to go along with the GSA field trip in the Upper Grand Coulee, written by Richard Waite, Brian Atwater, and others. A brand-new Ph.D. dissertation finished by Joel Gombiner, University of Washington. A field trip led by Sky Cooley, a Montana geologist who's been over here looking at calcretes, and so on. But my message to you today... And a theme that I've been hammering now in class is that I had a big moment by accident just as I was about to head out to a place called Drumheller Channels. And if you want the full experience here and see a video that corresponds to, at least the first few minutes of a video that corresponds to what I'm describing today here with you in the radio form, uh, Jerome Lessman was not here yet. This is three weeks ago. I decide I'm going to meet a bunch of my geology 351 students over at Drumheller. It's a place with beautiful rock columns, and it's a place that I dropped my hammer, and many people know that story in that video clip. But I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to film today. I I got the students to sign a waiver so that I can get their faces on camera and even their voices on camera. And so I grabbed a couple of maps, just literally as, as the car was idling outside of the geology building, and I just drive myself and meet them over there. And the gimmick is, I go early, I film a little bit on my own, then those guys show up, then I continue to film, and I try to capture a place for the YouTube audience, uh, I also try to... Market the geology department that we have, and that you can be a student and go out to these amazing places. And you can also just get a, a sense of who our students are by getting them on camera. And many of them are familiar with that approach now, and they're a little bit timid, but not entirely timid. So it works, I think. So, anyway, I grabbed a couple of maps that I just had in a file cabinet that I forgot that I had threw them in the back of the car without even really looking at them, got out to Drumheller, just myself now, turn on my gizmo, turn on my iPhone camera, get my microphone, lapel microphone going, get my little fuzzy cat on it because it was slightly windy. And I said, let me grab a couple of those maps just in case I need them. And so I found this little rocky nook with a couple of the columns in the distance over my shoulder. Again, this is an hour before the student showed up. And I grabbed a big map, and I'm like, literally, as I'm turning the camera, I'm like, okay, so I guess I'll I'll hold this one up. And I had two maps. One was a modern map uh, produced beautifully by the Ice Age Floods Institute. Maybe many of you know the look of that that, uh, map of the Pacific Northwest, showing the key places involving the Ice Age Floods. Ice Sheet, Okanagan Lobe, Purcell Trench Lobe, Glacial Lake Missoula, Glacial Lake Columbia, blah, 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 blah. The conventional story. And it's a beautiful map. So I held that up in this little intro to this video that I think I entitled Teaching Geology 351 at Drumheller Channels. But as the camera was rolling, I'm like, oh, I got this other map here at my feet. Let me just grab it. And I had it folded up. So I just kind of unfolded it, and I just, in in real time, remembered, oh, this is a a map by J. Harlan Bretz in 1928, and I'd forgotten that I had printed out sections of that map and scotch-taped it together like 10 years ago. And so as I'm holding this thing up to the camera, and I'm looking into the camera in reverse... I'm kind of seeing what i'm doing and talking to the audience and i said something like well we're studying j harland bretz's work in the 1920s and here's a map from the paper that we've been studying in class full disclosure i hadn't even looked at the map by the you know uh because we hadn't had the classroom discussion yet and as i'm holding the map up to the camera backwards i'm noticing bretz has an ice sheet on top of the city of Spokane. And I just commented off the cuff, like, well, here's this map that's 100 years old, and notice that Brett's has an ice sheet over Spokane, but, and I think I said in the video, uh, well, I'm, I'm I'm, sure that, or no, I don't know what I said. I said something like, well, that's probably not the way people view it anymore. Or I know it's not the way people view it anymore, but maybe I said something, like, well, Brett's probably changed his mind at the point, but this is an early map. So I put the map down, didn't think much of it, went back, did the hike with everybody. And then Jerome Lessman showed up a few days later. And as we're getting ready for his first uh, classroom led discussion, I had that map again. And I said, yeah, We had killing time before the class started. And with that first Jerome, and I, I filmed that one, but I filmed it with the with the gizmo, so it wasn't a live stream. I just kind of wandered around the room as Jerome was working with my students, and he was an excellent sport. Here's an authority on ice age geology in British Columbia. Here's someone who's thought deeply about the Channeled Scablands. Here's a teacher uh, that excels in many areas, and I'm just throwing them to the wolves. Not that the students are difficult, but I I was just like let's, you know, I'm I'm in improvisational person, Jerome. Let's just roll with this. And I guess he's seen enough of me on YouTube to go, okay, yeah, I guess I have a general sense of what's up. So he did a beautiful job. But as Jerome and I are standing up there in front of the classroom and the students are starting to fill in and they're chit-chatting with each other, I'm like, hey, Jerome, check this map out. I just noticed this last week at Drumheller. What do you think of this ice over Spokane? And Jerome Lessman, who has been trying over the last 20 years to build a case to convince other geologists in print that water coming out from underneath the ice sheet in north-central Washington is a possibility, probably more than a possibility, that subglacial flow is a source for much of the Ice Age floodwater in the western part of the Channel Scablands. I'm pretty sure Jerome said, as we're looking at that map at Spokane, which is in the eastern part of the Scablands, yeah, boy, I guess I I never noticed that. Or if he had noticed it, it was long ago. Like, similar to me, I guess. I think I had noticed it 10 years ago when I saw Brett's 1928 map, but I didn't give it much thought. And so I just started running with it. I just started running with it mentally before class starts. I'm like, Jerome, if you're trying to make this case for subglacial flow and these angry floods through tunnel valleys underneath the ice sheet in the Okanagan and feeding water into, let's say, Moses Cooley, Jerome, wouldn't your life be easier if that wasn't such an albatross? That if it wasn't just a one-time thing, but perhaps at the same time at Spokane, there was the same thing? And I don't remember, but because we've had many discussions about it since, but I think probably that initial discussion, Jerome's like, whoa, 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 put the brakes on. What are you doing? And I just kept running with it. I said, look, look what Bretz is doing. He's taking this ice sheet, sitting on top of Spokane, something he calls the Spokane Glaciation. I'll explain in a second. And he has the Cheney-Palouse-Scablands track. These flood-scoured, basaltic wasteland areas. (laughs) In the the view of farmers, it's a wasteland. There's no rich soil there. The soil has been stripped away. The list has been stripped away. The easternmost... Aggressive pathways for Ice Age floodwater. Brett's has the ice sheet over Spokane right at the head of the Cheney Palouse pathways, or another way of saying it. With that 1928 map by J. Harlan Brett, he has each of these channeled scablands in red, going right up to the front of the ice sheet including Moses Cooley going right up to the Okanagan lobe, including the Telford Crab Creek uh, channeled scablands which go right up to those uh, portions of the ice sheet. And yes, back to the main point, he has the ice sheet flowing not only to Spokane, Washington, but past, to the south of Spokane, Washington. And so that was just the start. And I don't know how to do this in just a few more minutes, but that was the theme with Jerome every day after that, with Jerome Lessman driving just he and I up through this area. In fact, that coming weekend when I had a a different engagement up in Winthrop, a family thing, Jerome just said, I'll 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 see you. I'm going to head out, do some field work this weekend. I'll be back on Monday night, but I'm going to, drive from the Okanagan over to Spokane and try to, try to see what Bretz was, was noticing. I want to see if there's a moraine there. I want to see what is south of the Columbia River in the Spokane area to give Brett's the idea that there was an ice margin there. Okay, well, am I obsessing about a map that's almost 100 years old? Sure. didn't Bretz eventually change his mind because that's not what the maps look like today when telling the Ice Age flood story? And the answer is no. And you're like, what, what was the question? The question was, did Bretz change his mind during his career? And the answer's is frickin' no. At one point, Again, Liz was home and Bijou and, and uh, Jerome and I are just talking full volume uh, you know, all hours of the day about this stuff, upstairs in my office, downstairs at the kitchen table. At some point, I just said, look, I, I, I'm going to go up to school. I'm going to grab every Brett's paper I can find, every Richard Foster Flint paper. I got a whole box of this stuff. I haven't looked at it in five years. I'm going to bring it all home. So we had stacks and stacks of old maps and old papers, and the punchline is, J. Harlan Bretz, starting in 1923 and to his last paper in 1969, when he's over 85 years old, Bretz still has that ice sheet over Spokane. He didn't change his mind. He didn't back off of it. And on that weekend that Jerome Lessman did his little road trip solo, he said, can I borrow this? And it was Richard Foster Flint's one of his big papers in the 1930s. And Flint is the, the bad guy in the in the Har- J. Harlan Brett story, where he insists, in the 1920s at least, that Brett's is wrong and there is no catastrophic flooding and everything was done by just simple, lazy rivers. I don't have all that Flint stuff figured out, but when Jerome got back from his weekend trip, he he had spent most of the weekend not only in the field but reading Flint, around the campfire or whatever, I don't know. And he said, hey, new, I, got, I got newfound respect for Flint. He's got that ice sheet south of Spokane as well. So here's two of the biggest names in the Ice Age flood story up until the late 1960s, and they want that ice sheet over Spokane. Now, I can hear what you're asking yourself right now. Why is that such a big deal? Well, I'm still trying to work that out. And I need to do more detective work, I think, to see what specifically has been mapped to have these two old timers insist that that ice sheet uh, was south of Spokane. But I guess I'm most fascinated at the moment by who the hell moved that ice sheet out of there? Who moved it back? Who got that ice sheet on those maps? Who peeled it back north of Spokane? And you're like, well, now this is you talking. Well, I know the Ice Age floods. I've been studying it as an amateur for my whole life, or in the last 25 years. And they never have the ice sheet over Spokane. Instead, what they have over Spokane is Glacial Lake Columbia. And the conventional answer is Glacial Lake Columbia is standing water uh, that got, Released from Glacial Lake, Missoula, but it got ponded up in northern Washington in the Columbia Valley because of the Okanagan ice dam, the Okanagan lobe sitting in its place downriver from Grand Coulee Dam. And so you're saying, uh, I don't know what you're talking about in this episode, but that's not right. These maps say there's no ice over Spokane, there's standing water called Glacial Lake, Columbia. Well, just play with me here, would you, at the 20-minute mark? Let's just go back and humor the two old-timers. And let's put that ice sheet back. Let's put that ice sheet back, okay? I don't know how thick it is, but there's an ice sheet sitting on top of Spokane, Washington. And the ice margin is down towards Cheney, Washington. And that's exactly where these very dramatic... Uh channelled scablands begin. If you're willing to entertain the idea that it's wet underneath an ice sheet, and it's not only wet underneath an ice sheet, but there are natural valleys, tunnel valleys underneath that ice sheet. And if you're willing to admit that there's a lot of water underneath an ice sheet and that water can move and is pressurized and has speed on occasion. Is it possible that the Rathdrum Prairie in the Spokane area was a tunnel valley? Is it possible that yes, there was an ice dam holding back Glacial Lake, Missoula, but is it possible that that ice dam was not just up there at Sandpoint, Idaho, not some sort of wimpy little ice dam? Maybe it was a ice dam that extended from Sandpoint, Idaho, clear to Cheney, Washington. And maybe if we have an Ice Age flood from Glacial Lake, Missoula, maybe we don't break an ice dam, maybe we just have some sort of outburst underneath the ice. Now, this is crazy talk, and if you are a long-experienced Ice Age Floods geologist here in the States, I think you've been frantically looking for the stop button on this podcast, because I am am speaking out of turn now. I am not talking the conventional story. But, I don't know, maybe you haven't reached for the pause button or the stop button or the eject button or the get-this-podcast-off-of-my-phone button. I'm going to go a little further I got you here, let's go the two main themes that have emerged with my students and with Jerome Lessman and Joel Gombeiner and Sky Cooley more coming on those guys in future radio episodes I think God, it was a fertile time it was a treat to have them all here but they were into it man. they were into it hours and hours of discussion really fun I'm still trying to process all the stuff we talked about. The two themes that have emerged, one, kind of what I've been alluding to, is all of the Ice Age flooding in eastern Washington, Montana water. Because if you listen to the conventional story, whether it's Ice Age flooding over Wenatchee, Washington, down Moses Cooley, down Grand Coulee, Palouse Falls, Palouse Coulee. If you're listening to the to standard story, all of that water is coming somehow from Montana. And it's getting sent different uh, locations due to elevation changes and the upper Grand Coulee being blocked by basalt or being blocked by the ice itself. and All sorts of convoluted plants. Okay, so I knew I, knew I was generally going to go there with my students this spring. In fact, the first day, uh, I said, I don't know what we're going to learn together, but I know that our first study question together, just you and I, is, you're telling me it's nothing but Montana water, huh? That's become kind of a running joke now in the class. We stand out there in Frenchman Coulee. I'm like, every drop of water coming over this falls is uh, from Montana, That's what you're telling me? And Alec will go, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. They're playing along. So I knew that was the kind of one question we were going to play with the entire quarter, and we're still playing with it. And spoiler alert, Joel Gombeiner, his new Ph.D. dissertation, University of Washington, supervised by Brian Atwater and John Stone, Joel makes a very strong case for much of the Moses Cooley flooding not coming from Montana, but coming from subglacial flow directly underneath the Okanagan lobe. I realize if you're listening in Madagascar right now, these places and these concepts mean nothing to you, but if nothing else, maybe you can feel the excitement in my voice and maybe that's that's a plus uh, for you to spend time here. But the second theme that's come up Again, a direct result of this accidental discovery of putting that ice back over Spokane is when exactly did the carving happen? When exactly did the Ice Age floods, with unimaginable force and volume, carve those coulees, carve those scablands? Is it possible? Let's just get stupid for a second. Is it possible that almost all of the precious dates that we have from slackwater sediments, from tephras trapped within the slackwater sediment, from counting varves between slackwater sediment layers, from cosmogenic surface exposure dates? from the boulders is it possible all those numbers all those dates that we have here in 2023 is it possible all of those dates are coming from a very late minor time and is it possible that telling the story of the ice age floods in a conventional way and saying listen up everybody Once upon a time, 20,000 years ago, the ice was advancing from Canada. What if that's just the last gasp? What if that's just an afterthought to the Ice Age flood story? And what if the real story, what if the real aggressive mind-blowing story of retreating waterfalls and carving deep potholes and so on and so on and so on, what if that aggressive cutting and carving of the basalt happened a million years ago, at least happened older than 100,000 years ago. And what was the title of this episode today? Spokane glaciation. Guess who had two generations of ice sheet advance on his map in 1928? You guessed it, J. Harlan Brett's. He labels the Wisconsin Advance as the last glacial maximum, as the, as the most recent. And the only Wisconsin ice sheet advance he has on his map in 1928 is at the famous Withrow Moraine, which is uh, draped on both sides and across the bottom of Moses Cooley, a little town called Withrow, Washington. If you punch in Withrow, Washington on Google Maps, you'll, you'll find this amazing-looking moraine. Everybody agrees, including Brett's, that's the southern extent of the Okanagan lobe, and he didn't know it at the time, but we know it now, due to all those dates I just talked about, that that ice advanced between 19 and 17,000 years ago, and that ice sheet started to back up about 15,000 years ago and got out of Washington by 13,500 years ago, but that's the last glacial maximum story. That's the wimpy, after-the-fact, icing-on-the-cake story. J. Harlan Bretz, on his 1928 map, in addition to the Wisconsin advance, getting pissed now, getting excited, getting both. In addition to the Wisconsin advance, he's got another ice advance, an older ice advance, an older glaciation. And he calls it the Spokane glaciation. Why? Because he says in dashed lines north of Winthrop, North of Withrow, the Withrow Moraine, he has a dashed uh, southern terminus of the ice sheet sometime older than the most recent advance. But the part that I didn't notice until after hour seven down at the Tav in the patio on a Friday afternoon with all this beer and talking to these three guys... And I'm on the side of the picnic table where I've been staring at this Brett's map upside down. You know, I'm on, I'm on the wrong side to see it right side up. I finally just blurted out, holy shit, Brett's has got the Spokane glaciation over Spokane, not the Wisconsin. So Brett's, in part, I think, has that ice margin south of Spokane dashed because it's not the most recent advance. But if you're following my logic with this episode, and now apparently I'm yelling, he's got the red scablands leading up to the Spokane ice margin. And again, that Spokane ice margin is not the most recent one. So from all of his detailed field mapping on foot, Brett's is deducing and making the call that perhaps the major carving, the major flood erosion is not happening younger than 20,000 years ago. Now, that is a major change in all the brochures and all the websites and all the video programs. You don't hear that anywhere. And I'm I'm saying here today that I'm not making it up. I stumbled onto the concepts in part by revisiting carefully. A map made in the 1920s. So yeah, if you've seen the YouTube channel recently, I'm starting to visit these deposits that are clearly older than 100,000 years ago. And I'm starting to think as carefully as I can and just having fun trying to flesh out that story. If it's that old, of course, we're not going to have the level of precision and we're not going to have many satisfying answers to our questions, But to me, just the willingness to change our narrative, to change our thinking, to realize that some of the water maybe did come directly from the ice sheet, and maybe a majority of the ice age flood erosion did not happen in this young time that everybody says it happened. Terrible grammar. Those are two really fun narratives to follow. And so I'm checking in just telling you that's what I'm thinking about. And it's just damn fun. I don't know how, long, how much longer I'll keep rolling on this. I'm going to drive down to Reno to go to a Cordier and section meeting uh, next week. And I'll be going back to thinking about Baja, BC, and exotic terrains. But I'll be back up here, back to the students. And we will continue going to Moses Cooley and other places. But those two themes, really fun. And possibly, if you have enough background in Ice Age floods in the Pacific Northwest, perhaps those are a few thoughts that you hadn't had before. And if that's true, that feels good. Okay, dear listener. Thank you for sticking to the end of this one. I love you. Thanks for listening, and goodbye from Ellensburg, Washington, U.S.A.